Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10. We uh, explained last week that uh, this chapter is our Lord's, presents us with our Lord's discipling pattern, uh, how he trained the twelve. So we started looking at the very beginning of verse 1. We saw the apostles' initiation. It says Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Uh, that word summoned, we saw, translates a compound Greek word which combines two words, one which means to call and the other which means towards. So the idea is to call to oneself. It's the idea of a face-to-face -face calling in order to receive an official commission uh, from one who is calling. Uh, it's not a casual request. Jesus is summoning these men to him in order to give an official commission. Uh, you'll notice that while Matthew refers to them as disciples in verse 1, what does he call them in verse 2? Apostles. They were disciples when they were learning. They were apostles when they were sent. Um, and we saw there's basically four phases in Christ's training of the twelve. First was their conversion and initial calling to faith. Then there was a second phase in which he called them to leave their occupations and follow him and be trained for ministry. And then there's a third phase of their training, and that's that they are to be sent out. <clears throat> and that's where we come to in verse 1 here. This is not the final phase. This is the third phase. Mark tells us they were sent out two by two. Uh, they weren't ready to go out alone yet, uh, but during that time, they needed another one of the guys for support, and Jesus was always waiting back there for them to return, check back in, let him know what was going on, and so you might sort of call it an internship, like a short-term mission trip. Then there was a fourth phase of the training of the Twelve, and that was after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven. When Jesus went back to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit back who enters into them and they then scattered and went all over the world discipling the nations. Uh, that was the final sending of the twelve. So as we move on to examine in more detail the initiation and training of these guys, we have to look at some of the foundational aspects of that process. We saw that first of all they were sovereignly chosen by God. Uh, it was his choice, his will, his sovereign purpose. Second, not only were they sovereignly chosen, but they were chosen after a night of prayer. Luke 6, 12 and 13 tell us that it was at that this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. Third, they were chosen to be prepared, and that preparation came through training. Training is an essential part of discipleship. They weren't chosen simply to be sent out. There had to be a training time. Uh, Jesus knew that these men had to be trained, uh, to be taught, to learn before they were sent. And I can't imagine any kind of training that would be better than that provided directly by the Lord Jesus. Uh, you know, learning really happens when you watch a godly man walk through a life of ministry in various situations. Uh, that's when you learn. You learn from the pattern. You learn from the consistency of life, 
from seeing how he ministers to those in need of grace and to those in need of rebuke. Uh, that's what discipleship is. It isn't 10 weeks in a class. Uh, it's walking with a godly person and hearing them speak and pray and minister to others. It involves spending time with them. Now, when training these guys, Jesus had to deal with some inadequacies that they had. Uh, first, we saw that they lacked spiritual understanding. Uh, they didn't understand their role. They didn't understand the purpose of Christ's sufferings. They didn't understand the principles. They didn't understand the parables. And that's all part of the discipleship process that you have to overcome in those whom you are teaching. How did Jesus overcome their dull-headedness and lack of spiritual understanding? Simply by teaching and teaching and teaching. Uh, he never stopped. They had a second problem, though, and that was a lack of humility. Uh, they were a proud, jealous, envious bunch. Uh, all the time Jesus is walking along, they're following back there in the back, arguing with one another over who's the most important guy in the group. Uh, and we looked at several passages where that was demonstrated. Uh, so he had to deal with their lack of humility. How did he deal with it? He dealt with it by giving them a demonstration of his own humility. He likened himself to a little child in Mark 9. He likened himself to, uh, in uh, Matthew 20, to a slave. Uh, in John 10, he washed their feet. And then he said, you should act in the same way to one another as I've just done for you. So whereas he overcame their lack of understanding by teaching, he overcame their lack of humility by example. He used an example of his own life as a teaching tool. And that's where we stopped last time. Marsha. The uh, disciples had a third problem. They lacked faith. Now that's a rather significant problem. Uh, it's, it's a rather significant issue if you're going to be in, in the ministry. Uh, they trusted Jesus for salvation, but they struggled to trust his truth, his goodness, or his power. Over and over again, in fact, five times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records that Jesus referred to them as men of little faith. Uh, he performed so many miracles, and still they didn't believe and trust him. In fact, in Mark 440, after calming the storm at sea, he says, why are you afraid? How is it you have no faith? Uh, in Mark 16, 14, after his resurrection, it says he afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. They didn't even believe the reports of his resurrection from other followers of Christ. They'd witnessed nearly every miracle uh, that he had performed for three years, including raising at least three people from the dead. The son of the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. And yet they didn't believe the reports of his own resurrection any more than they believed his predictions of it. It's a rather strange bunch to work with. Um, I guess they are. Yeah. Yeah. 
how do you ever transform these guys into people who would change the world? Uh, how did he deal with their unbelief? Well, he kept on providing proof to them, showing them his power over and over and over again. In fact, all of those miracles he performed were primarily for their benefit. They, he wanted them to be absolutely certain of who he was. Even after his resurrection, he kept on proving that it was real to them. In Acts 1.3, uh, it says, To these he also pre presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's not talking about miracles because the, uh, the word that's used there is not the word for miracles or signs. Uh, there's nothing in any scripture that indicates, I don't know if you realize this, there's nothing in any scripture that indicates that Jesus ever performed any miracles after his resurrection. Uh, what it's talking about is convincing evidence that he was actually alive, uh, that he had actually been resurrected. He appeared to them, he ate food with them, he let them touch him, and he did that for 40 days. So there was sufficient time for them to realize it wasn't just a hallucination or a dream. He was truly alive. So he overcame their lack of understanding with teaching. He overcame their lack of humility with example. He overcame their lack of faith by miracles and tangible evidence. <clears throat> All of that is a part of the teaching process. They had a fourth problem, and that was a lack of commitment. Uh, their lack of humility and self-understanding made them quick to promise that they would never leave him or forsake him but their lack of faith resulted in weak commitment, so that they failed the test every time. We all remember Peter, right? Matthew 26, 33, he tells Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And in verse 35 of the same chapter, it says, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says all the disciples said the same thing too. But what happened shortly after that? Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And the other ten all run away. How did Jesus deal with that? How did he deal with it? In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus is telling Peter about his upcoming denial of him. And he says, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Yes. Again, Craner. Yep. The important. We are so busy all the time. You read my notes. And he prayed in the beginning all night. Yeah. He prayed before he selected them. And then. And it's hard for me sometimes just to concentrate, but yet. It's pounded in his head here <laughs> how important it is. Yes. Yes. He dealt with their lack of commitment through prayer. Uh, if you read through Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, you find him praying intensely for the disciples. That's how you deal with a lack of commitment in someone you're discipling. You pray for them. Disciples had a fifth problem. 
<clears throat> they lacked power. They were impotent. They were weak and helpless. One example of that is in Matthew 17, 14 to 16. We're told that one day Jesus and the disciples came up to a crowd and a man came to Jesus falling on his knees before him saying, Lord, have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic and very ill for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Now, you might be inclined to think, well, what's so bad about that? But it says that he had given them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So later on in chapter 17, they can't do it. And so what's the problem? Well, listen to what Jesus says in the next verse, Matthew 17, 17. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking only to the crowd around him that day. He's also speaking to the disciples. They didn't have enough faith to believe that the authority he had given them was still in force, that they could cast a demon out that was causing the lunacy in that boy. How do I know that? Because the passage goes on to say that after Jesus cast out the demon, Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. They're impotent. They didn't have power. Yes. Well, yes, but, uh, and there's a question about the word fasting there and whether that should be included in the manuscript. Uh, some of the older manuscripts do not include it. <clears throat> but yes, it comes out by prayer. Uh, listen, the disciples were sovereignly chosen by God to be his apostles to found the church. They were chosen through prayer. They were chosen to be trained. And in their training, they had to overcome a lack of spiritual understanding through instruction, a lack of humility through example, a lack of faith through wondrous miracles, a lack of commitment through prayer, and a lack of power through the agency of the Spirit of God in their lives. And the lesson for us is the same. Whenever you disciple or mentor someone, you're going to encounter the same problems. And you overcome them with the same remedies. I can really identify with these guys, can't you? I mean, from the world's perspective, they're a bunch of losers. But God says, I can use these guys. And I'm going to transform them so that they turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And they accomplish that tax, that, that task. When all of the religious elite in Jerusalem looked at them, what did they say? Acts 4.13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What verse is that? That's Acts 4.13. That's good, yes. So I like that through all different backgrounds, as far as wealth and, and lack of it, 
They have all different professions. They have all different education levels. God just showed us that he can use any of us. Yep. Um, I just love all of the differences between men. Well, how did these religious elite know these guys had been with Jesus? I'll tell you how they knew. Because they did the same things Jesus did. They, they loved the same way Jesus loved. Uh, when the job was done, they went out as living mirrors to reflect Christ. It's all summed up in Luke 6.40. It says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Uh, Jesus trained them for three years, and then they went out and they were like their teacher. Listen to this paragraph by John MacArthur in his commentary on this passage. <clears throat> he writes, For three years they lived with this man among men who never uttered a word that was not true, who never sinned in thought or deed, who never lost his temper, who was never angry except in righteous indignation over evil. Though he was the Son of God, he never followed his own will or took glory for himself. He cared nothing for his own welfare, but everything for the welfare of others, literally wearing himself out with fatigue in their service. He healed the sick, cleansed the demon-possessed, and raised the dead, and he loved anybody and everybody. Now he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, in order that they might become like him. And they did. End quote. Folks, you don't get that kind of training by sitting in a classroom. You get it by walking around with a godly man. I think seminary is great to give you the tools to study and teach you the discipline of study. I know because I spent a lot of time in seminary, and I really appreciate all that I learned there, and I'm sure Frank would say the exact same thing. But no amount of classroom training prepares you for the real world of ministry. You learn that by getting out there in the mud pit of life with people and helping them deal with the grime and the grit of difficult situations in their lives by teaching them the word and how to apply it to their lives. All the while in the direction and guidance of an older, mature, godly shepherd. That's the process of discipleship. So as we start chapter 10, the disciples begin <clears throat> with their first short-term mission assignment in which they're going to be learning by doing. They're going to go out and they're going to run into all kinds of problems. And they're going to come back. And when they come back, they're going to spend many more months with Jesus. He's going to teach them based off of that experience. But this is their initiation into ministry. And that brings us to the next, to their impact, the apostles' impact. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says, He gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. <clears throat> it says he gave them authority. That Greek word is a noun that refers to the power or the right to give orders or make decisions. And that right or power has been legitimately delegated. Jesus granted the 12 disciples God's divine authority to do exactly what he himself had been doing. Why? Because that would demonstrate that they were from him. Because they were doing the very same things he did. And, that, and in that divine authority, which he gave to them, it says they could do two things. Cast out demons and heal every kind of disease and sickness. 
and his power was the confirmation of their message. But the main thing they did was preach. We know that because down in verses 6 and 7, as he sent them out, he, what did he tell them? Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, do what? Preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So their primary task was to preach. But when they preached, why would anybody want to believe them? The impact came when they did these marvelous works of casting out demons, demonstrating that they had power over the kingdom of darkness, and then healing, demonstrating they had power over disease. And so while they were preaching, they were healing. And they were casting out demons as an affirmation that they were indeed representatives of God. Remember what Nicodemus told Jesus? He said, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How do they know that? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That is what Jesus wanted people to say when they saw these men as well. That it was obvious that they must also be sent from God because what they were able to do. Listen, there's a very important passage that sums up this whole idea. It's found in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? The first preacher was the Lord. He was the first spokesman. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's the second generation. Those are the apostles. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, the word of the apostles was confirmed miraculously as they laid down the foundation for the church. So that was their impact. And you follow them all the way through the book of Acts. And what are they doing? Casting out demons, healing the sick. They had an impact. They, had the, they did the same things that Jesus did. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed the sick. They manifested the same kind of kingdom power that Jesus manifested. So they were inseparably linked to Christ and they had a tremendous impact. They turned Jerusalem upside down, and then they turned the world upside down with their teaching, and everywhere they went, there was a riot. And people were converted because of their impact. So then, so far we have seen the disciples' initiation into ministry and the impact they had as a means of the authority that Jesus gave them to heal diseases and cast out demons. But who were these guys? Well, verses 2 to 4, identify them for us. Now, you would think that <clears throat> I could just run through these, these names quickly, tell you a couple of sentences about them, but by now you know that's not true. <laughs> I plan to go through each one of them and tell you a little bit about what we know about each one. <clears throat> it's not, we're not going to finish today. And since we're not meeting for a couple of three weeks, and eventually if I recovered in time to teach three weeks from now, then uh, we'll pick it up then. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about each one. So let's look at the beginning of verse 2. Oh, I'm going to read all four verses here. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, 
and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. <clears throat> In his book, Quiet Talks on Service, S.D. Gordon gives an imaginary account of Jesus' return to heaven after his ascension. And he pictures Jesus walking down the golden streets of heaven, and all the angels in heaven are eager to greet him and welcome him. And the first to meet him there is Gabriel. And Gabriel engages Jesus in a conversation that goes like this. <clears throat> Master, you died for the whole world down there, did you not? To which Jesus answers, yes. Gabriel says, you must have suffered much. Again, the Lord answers, yes. Gabriel then asks, and do they all know what you did for them? Jesus says, oh no, only a few in Palestine know about it so far. <clears throat> Gabriel then asks, well, Master, what is your plan for telling the rest of the world that you died for them, that you shed your blood for all of them? To which Jesus responds, well, I asked Peter and James and John and Andrew and a few other fellows if they would make it the business of their lives to tell others. And then the ones that they tell could tell others, and then the ones that they tell could tell others. And finally, it would reach the furthest corner of the world, and all would know the thrill and power of the gospel. Gabriel is somewhat puzzled and asks, but suppose Peter fails? And suppose after a while, John just doesn't tell anybody? And what if James and Andrew are ashamed or afraid? Then what? To which Jesus says, Gabriel, I have no other plans. I'm counting entirely on them. Now that's a fantasy story. But it isn't far from the truth because that's exactly the way that God designed the plan to work. He would spend his time with 12 guys. The 12 would carry the message. The ones who heard it from them would tell others and others and others. And then here we are 2,000 years later, still telling it again, one generation to the next generation throughout human history. The, one, the only plan the Lord has for reaching the world is for the, those who know him to witness about him to others. The life-changing power of the gospel is in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and can be applied to a life only through the convicting and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But the declaration of the gospel is in the hands of those who have already experienced the new life and are willing to tell of it to others. But it all began with 12 guys. And 11 of those 12 guys are introduced to us in the first part of chapter 10 are the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now it says in verse one that he summoned his 12 disciples. We've already seen that a disciple is a learner, a student. Then verse 2, they're apostles, they're sent out ones. They start as learners, they become sent ones. And after his ascension and their indwelling by the Holy Spirit, they receive divine revelation. Three of them are responsible for, reading, for writing eight of the New Testament epistles. And it was their recollections and doctrines that were the basis for Mark, Luke, James, and Jude writing their New Testament books. They were the ones who received the revelation. They were the ones who taught it and wrote it down for the early church. When it, when it met together, it studied what we're 
Acts 2 refers to as the apostles' teaching. They were not the only ones who were the foundation in terms of leadership and authority, but they were the source of revelation and the framers of orthodox theology. Ephesians 4.12 says they were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. But it wasn't only what they said that was important, it was who they were. They were the first set of examples, the first pattern for people to look to, to see virtue. In Ephesians 3.5, they're called his holy apostles. That's an important title. That's a term which indicates the virtue of their lives. So they received revelation, and having received it, they taught it. Then having taught it, they codified it in writing. They framed it into a system of truth and theology from which the church learned. And all of their authority was confirmed by miraculous gifts. And it says in 2 Corinthians 12 that they had the signs of an apostle, which were the signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So they're the foundation. It's essential, I think, for us to see how the Lord works with them and disciples them and trains them and sends them out. That's to be the pattern for us as we disciple others and send them out. Now, frankly, these 12 guys are just 12 ordinary men. They're the only ones, the only one who may have had some kind of special wealth was Matthew, and he gained it by being a tax collector who worked for Rome and extorted his fellow Jews, and he gave it all up. So far as we know, none of them had any kind of academic background. They weren't the resident PhDs of Galilee. Uh, none of them, as far as we know, none of them had any social status. Uh, they're just common people. Some of them are still utterly unknown to us. All we know is their names. They were chosen from the common people to be the ones who would be the first line of agents of Christ to set in motion the advancement of the kingdom throughout the history of the world. There has never been in the history of the world a task greater than the task that these 12 were given. The most monumental, incredible thing that man has ever in the history of the world been asked to do is to finish the work that Jesus began. And that's exactly what it says in Acts 1.1. Luke says, the first account I composed, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared at various times to the apostles and gave them instructions on how they were to carry out his orders in spreading the gospel. And it says in verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which he said, you heard from, uh, from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the plan was in motion, and it all depended on these 12 guys. Now, as you look at this list, there are some fascinating things to learn just from the list itself. Now, there are four lists of the disciples in the New Testament. The one here in Matthew 10, one in Mark 3, one in Luke 6, and one in Acts 1. There's some interesting similarities. In all four lists, Peter is mentioned first. And then when Judas is mentioned, he's always mentioned last. 
That's interesting. Why is Peter always mentioned first? Was he the first one chosen? No. No, John 1 makes it clear he's not the first one chosen. But notice that phrase there. It says, the first Simon who is called Peter. That word translated first is that Greek word over there, protos. Uh, it means first, chief, principal, most important. Uh, in this context, it means the foremost in rank. The word is used in 1 Timothy 1.15 where Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am protos of all, foremost of all. So then how does Peter the foremost? Aren't the, aren't the apostles all equal? Well, let me see if I can explain by giving you an example from Lakeside Community Chapel. Through the years, we've had many people ask us about the eldership in the church. And they say, well, you have elders, but aren't some of them more important and have more authority than the others? No. All of the elders have the same authority, and it is shared. We make no decisions that are not unanimous. All of the elders are all equal. We all preach and teach. So the answer is yes in terms of office, yes in terms of authority, yes in terms of essence, but no in terms of function. Some elders function in roles that give them the responsibility to carry out certain functions of the ministry on a day-to-day -day basis. Joe Trofelmuck is the administrative pastor, and with that role comes a higher level of decision-making authority and responsibility on a day-to-day -day basis than the other elders. I'm the executive director of Verse by Verse Ministries, and I'm the chairman of our salary review committee. And with those roles come certain levels of decision-making authority and responsibility that other elders don't have. Joel Purcell is the worship pastor with responsibility to determine what the music ministry will be like and oversee the sound and broadcast ministry. Rig White is the chairman of the elders. With that role comes certain levels of authority and responsibility. But all of us are equal in authority in terms of deciding the overall direction of this ministry. Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor and thus he holds a far more visible role than other pastors but he has no more authority over this ministry than any other elder. That's hard for some people who are new to the church to figure out. They come from churches where you know you had the Protestant Pope up there uh, leading the church and they get to Lakeside and and they think that Steve makes all the decisions. You ought to be thankful Steve doesn't make all the decisions. <laughs> I don't say that in a mean way. Steve is a brother to me. Uh, but, um, and he has a lot of wisdom. But he, you know, you need that shared responsibility that, and authority that goes right straight from Scripture. So in the same way, Peter is the foremost apostle. He was the recognized leader of the pack, but he was equal to all the other apostles. And they're all equal to him, but he's their recognized leader. There's a second thing to notice about these lists of the guys. In all four lists, there are three groups. 
The first group is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The second group begins in verse 3, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Then the third group, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. In every list that you examine in Scripture, all four lists, each group always has the same four guys in it. They never get out of their group in all three lists. Always the same four. Their names may be in different order, but they're always in the same group. Another interesting thing is that if you, uh, at the calling of the twelve, you find that the first four were the first four called. Apparently, the next four are the next ones called, and the last four are the last ones called. So you have these three groups of four. What's interesting is that we know quite a bit about the guys in the first group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We know a little bit more about the guys in group two, Philip, Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew. But we don't know anything about group three except for Judas. And what we know about him, we wish we didn't know. So there's a decreasing amount of information and a decreasing intimacy. Jesus was very close to group one. He's somewhat close to group two, and based on the lack of information, we don't know whether he was that close to, at all to group three. And that points up a very important factor in leadership. And that is you can't be extreme, extremely close with everyone. It's impossible. Out of the 12, Jesus was particularly close to three of them, Peter, James, and John. There's just no way in spiritual leadership that you can have close personal relationships with everyone. And so even though the function of all 12 is just as important and their ministry just as wonderful, uh, Jesus had his closest personal relationships with three of them. Also, you'll notice that the writers of Scripture are from groups one and two. Peter, John, and Matthew. You'll notice that the writers, however, of Scripture came out of group one and group two, mostly out of group one. <coughs> There's another observation about these lists. In each of the three groups, the names may be listed in a different order, but the first name is the same in every group. In every group, it's every list, it's Peter, at the first group, it's Philip in the second group, and it's James, the son of Alphaeus, in the third group. Some Bible scholars believe that that's an indication that even in the individual groups, there was one man who was the recognized leader of that little group. Uh, and that's how organizational leadership functions. There's one large group with one uh, person who's a recognized leader, and then there are some subgroups with a leader in each of them. That kind of structure exists in almost every successful organization since then. Now, their temperaments of these men are also very different. For example, Peter was a man of action. He was impulsive. He was eager. Someone has said he was the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth uh, because he was always sticking his foot in it. Uh, he's always blurting out, charging ahead in a mad hurry. And then there's James and John, who were known as the Sons of Thunder. They're impulsive. They wanted to rain down fire on everybody and anybody who didn't who opposed Jesus. Uh, it took a while, but observing Jesus and following him eventually changed, transformed John into a man who was known for his quiet, loving heart. 
There's a couple other interesting fellows in group two. There's Nathaniel, who's also known as Bartholomew. Uh, he was somewhat skeptical, as indicated by his response in John 1 to Philip calling him to go see Jesus. Uh, when Philip told him that they had found the Messiah and it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. Uh, I love Nathaniel's response. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yeah. And also in his group was the ultimate skeptic, Thomas, who refused to believe anything unless he could see it, touch it, and feel it. And then you had Matthew, who worked for the Roman government extorting taxes. And then you had Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of radical reactionaries who sought to overthrow Rome, even by means of the assassination of Roman soldiers and those working for the Roman government. I can guarantee you that if it wasn't for Jesus working and teaching and transforming these guys, Simon the Zealot would have killed Matthew in a heartbeat if given the opportunity. It had to be somewhat touch and go at the first until the Lord's influence permeated their, their hearts and changed them into different men than they were before. So you have a group made up of 12 men with political differences, spiritual differences, and emotional differences. And the Lord selected this mishmash of characters and used them to change the world. The wonderful story is that apart from Judas, they didn't fail. They didn't fail. And if you think about it, Judas accomplished what God intended for him to accomplish. Well, I could begin with Peter. Let me see. Or I could quit early. And based on my, my voice, I probably should quit early. So let me uh, just pause right there and find out, are there any uh, questions or comments on any of these, what we've talked about so far with these guys? She failed to mention one of the more important elements of the, uh, the changes in these men, and that was the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes. Without whom, I don't think they would have amounted to a hill of beans. No, they would never have amounted to a hill of beans. It was the Holy Spirit's transforming power like that God. made them who they were. Otherwise, they were losers. Yes? And Cephas, yeah. 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 And in fact, he even met with with Peter privately uh, after the resurrection. He, uh, and then of course we have the we have the restoration of Peter in John twenty one. But uh, yeah, clearly Peter was the leader. But he, there is nothing other than Catholic tradition that would, there's nothing to form a basis that Peter was the first pope, as the Catholic Church teaches. So, yes? So is one of the reasons Peter was thought to be the leader or most visible or prominent, could we say, because Jesus said that 
because the Holy Spirit granted to him the confession. And upon that confession, the faith would be built. Is that a plausible reason? Well, I think he was already the, he was already the recognized leader. Most people believe that Peter was probably a little bit older than the other disciples. I mean, John himself was probably like 20 years old. He was a 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, John. Whereas Peter was probably, you know, mid, late 20s, something like that. The Catholic tradition, um, when it comes to putting Peter, all of it is based on the statement that Jesus made, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So yeah. they take that, and they say, there you go. The church is based on Peter, Pope, therefore the Pope is the foundation of the church. And that's that, that's their whole theology when it comes to Peter. Yeah. Yeah. How come all the popes aren't married? Peter was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree. Yes, Richard. What about Matthias and uh, Paul? What about them? Uh, well, there were twelve apostles. Which well, one was apostle? We only needed one guy, right? Well, I would refer you back to Acts uh, to Steve Kreloff's message on Acts. For the calling of Matthias, and to replace Judas, to replace Judas, uh, how Matthias was called, and and how that was, what God wanted done, and then God apparently wanted Paul there to be an ambassador to the Gentiles. So, Ingrid, you mentioned that uh, we teach by example, and that's what Jesus did to teach humility. Faith, commitment. Uh, he did miracles in order to increase their faith. He uh, prayed in order to increase their commitment. And that if we were to teach by example, we cannot do the miracles that no, Jesus did. We can't so do. Does the word of God replace so the in order to increase the faith because uh, preaching of the word increases faith? Yeah. Yeah. Teaching of the word. Having a deep commit, an absolute to complete commitment that this is God's word to us. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient. Uh, is the way and today that we overcome those things. But we also teach by example. Still, okay, Barry. Uh, on Nathaniel uh, Bartholomew, right? Mm -hmm. And his early on introduction of Jesus, uh, when Andrew brought him over. Yeah. Him. Mm -hmm. And he immediately no, recognized him. Yeah. Uh, after he called him the man of Nova he re originally recognized him yeah. as God. And there, well, was he kind of the lone one that was. Uh, was he kind of. Faith and, and yeah, he, believe, he, uh, he was. On, maybe on, after yeah, as soon as Jesus said, you know, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. He realized this guy's more than just some passing rabbi. And uh, he was, um, uh, I always liked it. I, I've always liked that. When we were hiring Joe Trofimuk, I'll tell this story on myself. We, he of course at the time was out in California and uh, somebody said, we got this guy from California, but he grew up in Perry, Florida. 
Well, I know Perry, Florida, Taylor County, Logging Town, Backwoods. And I, my response was, can anything good come out of Perry? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I did. I've told Joe that many times. All right. Well, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to examine these men, to see how you transformed them into men who turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would use the same ways that you trained them to train others and that we would then turn our little part of the world upside down for you. Thank you for bringing us together today. May as we go into the next service, may we please you with our praise. May our hearts be focused on Jesus Christ and bring honor and glory to him in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.